vaccinations have done a world of good in this country. And you look at countries where they don't have mandatory vaccination programs, and they have just enormous health problems compared to the United States. So when a state says that we're going to allow folks to opt out of mandatory vaccination programs, then the battle becomes, okay, what about the opt-out programs? Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. And before we introduce today's topic, we would like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Well, in recent news, there's been a coverage of the spread of communicable diseases that were once stamped out by immunization and good sanitation. With outbreaks of preventable afflictions like measles, there's been a stronger call for mandatory vaccinations for school-aged children and healthcare professionals. But not everyone is on board with these requirements, and so the debate has begun regarding individual rights and common welfare, and it's taking on new momentum. So here today to discuss the legalities of this new issue, we have three guests. The first is Mr. Drew Trimble. He's a featured author in the National Law Review where he wrote an article titled The Law of Mandatory Flu Shot Requirements. In addition, he's an associate at McBrayer, McGinnis, Leslie, and Kirkland, where he focuses on general litigation, employment law, and criminal defense. Prior to that, he worked for the United States District Court, clerking for Eastern District of Kentucky as a law clerk for Judge Gregory F. Van Tattenhove. Among the other numerous issues he handled, there were criminal law, employment law, contract disputes, medical malpractice, and civil rights. Welcome, Mr. Trimble. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And next we have Mr. John Tachi, who's a regular contributor to the Massachusetts Bar Journal, where he wrote an article titled, Mandating Flu Immunization of Healthcare Workers, Not the Best Medicine. In his practice life, he handles a wide spectrum of employment law matters and manages his firm's employment counseling and litigation practice. Finally, John is the current chair of the Massachusetts Bar Association Labor and Employment Section Council. Welcome, John Tachi. Good to be here. And last but not least, we have Jeremy Bylan, who's a writer for Thompson Writers Legal Solutions blog, where he wrote an article titled, The Legal Status of Mandatory Vaccinations. He's a practicing attorney who focuses on family law and estate planning, he resides in Minneapolis, Minnesota with his wife, who is also an attorney, and their two children. Welcome, Jeremy Bylan. Uh, thank you very much. Well, just to get the groundwork laid here, uh, each of you in turn, if you wouldn't mind giving, me, uh, giving us an answer of whether you support vaccines or whether you're or against vaccines. Uh, Drew, let's start with you. Well, Greg, in response to your question, I, I, in full disclosure, I'm not a doctor or um, a scientist, but from a strictly policy matter, I would probably categorize myself as more pro-vaccine. Uh, vaccine programs have done a good deal in eradicating certain diseases like smallpox and controlling the rate of vaccine-preventable diseases. I read recently that the CDC considers vaccination as one of the top, at the top, public health achievement of the last hundred years. And so I think a lot of good has been done. I really approach this more of an advisory role to clients and so to the 
second part of your question in terms of whether mandatory programs are appropriate, um, I think that really has a good deal of dependence on the nature of the entity, whether it's a, a public entity, whether it's a private hospital or um, a school. So I think it has a good deal to do on who you are and the nature of your circumstances as to whether a mandatory policy is actually a good idea or not. Right. John? Yeah, I, I'll just follow up on, on Drew's point. I, I agree with him wholeheartedly. I think if, if probably 80 or 90% of the populace doesn't think too much about vaccinations, we just go ahead and, and, and do it and don't consider themselves pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. So I, I certainly don't think that I fall into either pro or anti-vaccine. It sort, of, it sort of depends on the circumstances, but certainly, you know, I've got all my vaccinations. My kids have all their vaccinations, and I uh, have never objected to any kind of a uh, vaccination. Much of uh, the controversy, if there is any, uh, I think, revolves around the, the question of the efficacy of vaccines. So, uh, you know, in my view, I would be anti-mandatory vaccine of, of healthcare workers, for example, although I'm certainly uh, pro-vaccine uh, in, in other areas uh, outside of the flu vaccine. All right. And Jeremy, and then Jeremy, as you finish up with your answer, if you could give us a little bit of the, the background behind uh, immunizations and how the, the legal structure of that's been so far. Sure. Although I'm, I'm probably be uh, describing myself generally supportive of vaccination, uh, I wouldn't, I don't think I still use the term pro-vaccine to describe my views as I would maybe pro-scientific method. There really hasn't been a ton of uh, verifiable scientific data support, you know, the, the anti-vaccine movement's position that uh, the risks of vaccine outweigh the benefits. You know, if, if such data ever uh, materialized, I would definitely consider it and, and weigh and weigh it against all the other data out there. But uh, as it stands right now, you know, as, as the other two guests have, have, have said, that the uh, there's definitely been some a lot a lot of advancements in public health because of vaccines. And um, you know, I, I I wouldn't necessarily uh, say you know across the board again for every single vaccine that ever comes out you know vaccinated, but uh, as a general matter, yeah, vaccines are are probably just a great advancement in public health, and and generally am in support of of people getting not necessarily mandated, but just of vaccination the people getting their kids vaccinated. And as far as the quick history of mandatory vaccines and the law and that kind of thing. It, uh, it started, uh, the very first uh, law was actually from the city of Boston, and they mandated the smallpox vaccine uh, by city ordinance in 1827, and that was actually for school children, uh, not for adults. And uh, uh, several of the cities within the, the state followed, and eventually the state itself passed a law uh, mandating vaccination against smallpox statewide in the state of Massachusetts in 1855. Most other states uh, followed suit. There's a lot of, at the federal level, it wasn't so much mandating as it was like different uh, policies encouraging vaccinations. And uh, I mean, it's all just targeted towards smallpox. And that was as, as uh, the vaccine was responsible for the elimination of smallpox. And that's actually the smallpox vaccine uh, laws, mandated vaccine laws for smallpox were, were the two Supreme Court, the major Supreme Court cases uh, involving mandatory vaccine laws uh, or challenges came from. First one's 1905's uh, Jacobson v. Massachusetts, and that was about a uh, Swedish immigrant named Henning Jacobson, who during an outbreak of, uh, of smallpox in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, refused to get the vaccination. He 
uh, had some medical concerns, uh, but he didn't actually qualify for the medical um, medical exemption that existed at the time. So he was uh, charged and fined five dollars, uh, which is a little over one hundred thirty dollars by today's uh, standards. And he challenged it, and the Supreme Court disagreed with him and said, "No, this is within the state's uh, fully within the state's power to regulate the public health and safety." The issue of whether the state can can impose these same requirements on uh, persons under age 21 was addressed 17 years later in Zook v. King, also by the Supreme Court, and it essentially was the uh, basically the same thing. Where in order to go to, to to be able to go to school, the children need to present a certificate of vaccination, and the court upheld that requirement, saying again, the state, this is within the state's rights under the Constitution to regulate the public health and safety of of the state. The current laws that are on the books in most states are not the result of the smallpox vaccination movements and, and requirements, but of the measles outbreaks in the 1960s and 70s. And so, that, I mean, and as I'll get into later, I'm, I'm sure in the program, every state has something on the books for mandatory vaccinations for school children. Good. And Jeremy, let me interrupt you for a moment. John, let me ask you a question about mandatory vaccines and the ability to be able to require people to get vaccinated. Is there anything in the jurisprudence that limits mandatory vaccinations to uh, qualifications like whether the disease is deadly or whether it can spread to significant numbers of people or any other types of things? Or is this just a common police power that the government exercises? Well, I think uh, it, it is a, a common police power that the government exercises. I mean, that is, that's the power by which a, a, a state, and in this case, we're really talking about states because each state has its own set of mandatory vaccination laws. It's, it's not necessarily federal programs, although the CDC certainly touts the efficacy of vaccinations and they encourage the states to adopt mandatory vaccination laws. I think what the case law uh, indicates is that the, the, the state certainly has the police power to mandate vaccinations, and typically we're talking about school children, but that the the police power is the exercise of police power in, in most circumstances, it's got to be tempered and because what you're balancing against that police power is the right of, of Americans to, uh, to privacy, to their own bodily integrity and, and uh, you know, recognize parental rights to, to dictate the health care choices within reason for their children. So it really is a balancing act. And uh, uh, I think what we see in most states, I think almost every state, uh, save West Virginia, and I think one or two more, and maybe uh, my co-panelists can chime in if they, if they know the states off the top of their heads. But I, I think almost, almost every state provides some kind of an exemption uh, that, that allows parents to opt out of mandatory vaccination programs, either on religious or philosophical grounds. So what we're seeing in the lower courts and, and have seen over the past how oh, many years, but certainly there's been an uptick in litigation the past 10 or 15 years, is, is battles over those specific exemption laws. So when a state says that we're going to allow folks to, uh, to opt out of mandatory vaccination programs, then the battle uh, becomes, okay, what about the opt-out programs? Because they, the, the programs, the opt-outs, have been interpreted fairly broadly by the courts. You know, for example, there was a, a case in which a Jewish family uh, decided they didn't want their children vaccinated, and even though uh, there was no particular facet of, of Judaism, no, nothing they could specifically cite to, 
which dictated against vaccination laws, the court held in favor of the family and, and uh, held that because it was a sincere religious belief uh, that the family could object on those grounds, even though they couldn't point to a specific tenet of their religion that precluded vaccinations. Um, so, so we're seeing a, a battleground in states where uh, exceptions uh, have been adopted. And uh, in, in those states where no exception is allowed, that, is, that has been allowed under police powers as well. Uh, so states can have a mandatory vaccination program without any kind of opt-out as well. Drew, what kind of legal objections do people get to make to uh, government in mandatory vaccine orders? Are there any other types of exceptions? Well, John touched on a number of those. There are a few that seem to be kind of tried and true methods in which you can uh, can at least get some traction in court on these issues. I know Jeremy's very well written article. He has some very good empirical support for like the numbers of states who uh, ascribe and allow these kind of uh, exemptions for for people to raise these various objections. Uh, probably the most common raised objection and exemption would be the health or medical exemption. That's actually in the seminal case itself, Jacobson. It was mentioned earlier in the recitation of uh, historical precedent. Uh, the judge, Judge Harlan, in his opinion, he mentions that there are some cases in which somebody's own bodily health may counsel against requiring them to be able to submit to the vaccination. And that we see in most of the states will have an exemption for health or medical exceptions, and that seems to be something that would be um, available to most people. As was mentioned, there's generally a religious ex exemption that's available to people under the free exercise clause, but also that could be available under most of the state laws, have some sort of provision. You can get an exemption for their mandatory policy uh, if you do have some sort of sincerely held religious exemption. So as you heard, courts don't like to dabble into whether somebody's religious objection is sincere or not very often. There's a really interesting case Chinzira versus the Cincinnati Children's Hospital, in uh, which a, a court in the Southern District of Ohio um, heard an argument from someone who felt that their vegan practices were so closely held and sincerely held that it was very close to a religious belief or uh, philosophy, and uh, the Ohio judge allowed that over a motion to dismiss, and ultimately the case uh, settled. And so uh, there's a, another really interesting case that came out in 2015 in New York that went to the Second Circuit, Phillips versus City of New York, where uh, there were some folks who, on the basis of their religious beliefs, um, opted out of the New York law policy for vaccination of school children. Um, and there was a chicken pox outbreak at the school, and so under the school policy, um, they were required not to come in. They were, uh, they were sent home. And so, you know, the religious exemption is usually available, but sometimes there can be some negative consequences of that as well. Another interesting one popped up in a, um, in a case uh, called Mason Hospital, and, uh, and that the folks who were alleging their uh, an exemption or opposing a mandatory vaccination um, were actually allowed to be exempted from that vaccination requirement because there was a collective bargaining agreement provision that protected them from doing that. There's also some provisions in some state laws for just general philosophical agreements on only less 
states allow that. And then uh, but one thing that seems to be uh, generally true is that it generally doesn't work just to say I don't like this or I don't think that it is a uh, an effective way to deal with the problems. In the, the recent 2015 uh, Second Circuit case, uh, this is a, a quote, plaintiffs argue that a growing body of Scientific evidence demonstrates that vaccines cause more harm to society than good, but Jacobson made clear that is a determination of the legislature, not the individual objectors. So uh, health and medical objections, religious objections, uh, perhaps um, provisions in a collective bargaining agreement, those are the kind of things that uh, employees are going to be able to raise, citizens may be able to raise um, sort of the old Brandeis brief of uh, this doesn't work or this isn't a very good idea, uh, hasn't gotten much traction, and Jacobson itself seemed to think that that was in the province of the, um, of the state legislatures rather than individual objectors. Well, thank you. But before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with me today is Drew Trimble, John Tachi, and Jeremy Bylan, writers and contributors for the National Law Review, Massachusetts Bar Journal, and Thomson Reuters Legal Solutions blog, respectively as well as all practicing attorneys. My co-host, Bob Ambrosi, is on vacation today. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, here's a generalized question. What about immigrants and visiting tourists, people that aren't citizens of the country, that aren't subject to our laws? What do we do to protect ourselves when we put these mandatory vaccinations into place, and yet we allow people to come in and out of the edges of our country? Drew, let's start with you. Well, you heard a little bit about this in, in terms of the Ebola issues that uh, that came up in the news recently. And you've also had these issues coming up with other various uh, vaccine-controlled uh, types of diseases. You know, the, the states have procedures that that are in place, um, and uh, you know, Jacobson itself provides in some ways for people who are coming back from a place where they might have contracted some sort of disease and allows for quarantine procedures or um, other vaccination type procedures um, as well. And I think that though this is basically a and, and primarily a state power type of issue, uh, you, you can see with the, um, the, the CDC, with the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, um, there are programs that are in place when there's sort of international exchange, when people are coming in from other countries, that there are some procedures that are in place to try to 
um, account for those particular issues. Well, what about United States citizens traveling across the world? Are, do we have to comply with laws as we travel and find out what vaccinations are required as we travel to different countries? Jeremy? Well, it's the, the right to travel, uh, as it's right in the U.S. Constitution, is uh, going to be much more protections for interstate travel than there will be for international travel. As far as traveling internationally, they, you know, there's a lot more restrictions the government can place on, on citizens traveling abroad and coming back into the country. And um, it, is, it is a right that um, is subject to a, you know, to a lot of, I guess, uh, provisions uh, subject to the, the, whatever the U.S. government wants to do. There's, uh, I think, the, the case that kind of uh, established this is, uh, I think it's 1965 Zemel v. Rusk, where uh, the, uh, that, that case involved the restrictions for uh, passports to travel to Cuba, and it's basically the, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court established that it's uh, only subject to rational basis, the, the right to international travel. So it's, it, the government could very much, in theory, uh, require any citizens traveling abroad to become vaccinated before they left the country. Whether that actually whatever happened is unlikely, but, um, I mean, they, they, they could, in theory, legally do that. I think there'd be some other practical problems, like with having a certain certain vaccines, there aren't just enough numbers of to vaccinate everybody leaving the country. But they, they very well could require any citizens leaving the country to become vaccinated. Any citizens going back into the country, they can... Um, they are allowed to quarantine, as we saw with uh, all of the Ebola cases that came out and everything, that the, the people who were thought to have Ebola or maybe were in a region that, that had a high uh, infection rate of with Ebola were, were quarantined but when they first got back in. And I don't, I don't think that there's going to be uh, very many courts that are going to find that uh, constitutionally objectionable just because uh, the courts a lot of times give the government a lot more deference when it comes to public health and safety, national security, those kind of issues, um, and you know, when it, then the individual right to not have a, a needle poked in you or be kept in a, in a, in a medical facility for a couple of weeks at a time. Well, we have yeah. a situation that's come up recently where people have traveled from West Africa and come home to the United States and then put in quarantine because of their suspicion that they would have an Ebola virus which apparently there's not a vaccine for yet. So how does the vaccine law and the quarantine law interplay with each other in relationship to this travel issue we've been discussing as citizens travel back and forth between countries uh, and come home to the United States? Uh, John? Well, I think what we see in the law is the government has, at a federal level, has a, uh, a compelling interest to protect the borders, including who comes in, who comes in, who can leave the country, uh, not who can leave the country, but who can come into the country. So when it comes to U.S. citizens, uh, I think the power to quarantine is a pretty broad power. It's been used for a long time. Uh, it's never been successfully challenged. So the government can certainly quarantine uh, U.S. citizens who are returning from travel and uh, from other parts of the world, until the government is, until we are satisfied that uh, the person's not contagious, they don't have some kind of a deadly disease, and of course we're we're speaking in the context of Ebola, and uh, you know we we've seen this for decades uh, and longer, where there are stricter uh, examinations of citizens returning from travel from other parts of, of the world. It happens all the time, and it's uh, uh, certainly happening now with, with travel from uh, West Africa and other areas where Ebola is prevalent. The, the government can certainly require closer examination and even quarantine of returning citizens. You know, the, the government has a, a, a much broader power to restrict entry and, and preclude entry 
non-citizens to the United States. And, and again, something that, that has never been successfully challenged. If you're coming to the United States and you're a non-citizen, whether it's for a visit or to immigrate, uh, the government, uh, using its police powers, can certainly turn you away from its borders if it believes that you, uh, you, you're carrying a certain disease or you have not been properly immunized, um, then it has a reasonable uh, basis for doing so. So in getting back to a point made earlier, you, once you, you leave the United States to travel to another country, the listener should be clear that, that all bets are off. U.S. laws don't apply to entry into other countries. So once you leave U.S. territory and you're on foreign soil, um, entry into any other country is, is going to be premised upon the particular laws of that country. You have no special uh, rights as a citizen of the U.S. when it comes to uh, setting foot in a, a different land. Well, as we go across the country, why is it that the states are allowed to individually manage these, uh, whether they're vaccines or not, and are all states mandatory, and why isn't the federal government taking this over? Jeremy? Well, the biggest reason is because these are uh, considered police powers, uh, the regulation of safety and welfare of the state citizenry, which is specifically given, the power is specifically given to the states by the Constitution. So uh, the, actual, the federal government, they started managing you know, this stuff at the state level about um, you know, get mandatory vaccinations and stuff with the school entry and that kind of thing. Uh, they would, unless but they did it without the state's consent, they would actually be violating the Constitution and the state's authority to, to regulate these things. So the reason why the states do this is because that's one of their primary powers. It's along the same lines as having the state patrol or some kind of, or the statewide police force or city police force or anything like that. It's in the same category, the re- regulation of health and safety of the state. I mean, that's you know, one of the most basic constitutional provisions as far as state authority. So, well, let me let me. This is John uh, Tachi. Let me pose a question to you. Don't you think that under the Commerce Clause powers of the federal government, that uh, the, the feds could take over uh, immunization entirely from the states? I, I I think it's a fact of the matter that that at the time immunization programs started in the U.S., it was a time when the federal government didn't wield much power at all and there was there was really no no commerce clause the commerce clause was there but it the federal government never relied on the commerce clause for enforcement of any federal laws in the 1800s when many of these programs started so to me it seems just that by default the states have always run immunization programs but i don't know that any of us can really deny that under the commerce clause the federal government could mandate and and take over these programs i'm interested in my my fellow panelists it's a good question. That query. In preparation for our talk today, I reviewed a little white paper that the Congressional Research Service put together, and sure enough, the last heading of that is discusses the role of the federal government. And in that congressional white paper, they sort of surmise that uh, under the Commerce Clause that they would have power, and the Public Health Services Act would have the power to do much of the things that we've talked about, to, to deal with military issues, to deal with people coming in to going out of foreign countries, immigration into the country, that in association with our commerce power and the ability to regulate commerce in that way, certainly, as you said, a much broader power than would have existed in 1905 when Justice Harlan was writing. Uh, there certainly uh, would be, whether or not the argument could be made, there should be uh, more federal power to act 
in this area under the Commerce Clause, and I suspect that uh, many in the federal government would say that in an, in an emergency situation or in a situation of affecting immigration or uh, other border-related issues, military-related issues, and uh, issues that even tangentially touch interstate commerce, that there'd be some federal power that would be able to intervene in addition to the, the state police powers, which is where it has traditionally been been relegated and uh, thought to have been uh, vested uh, by our by the precedent of Jacobson and other places. Well, gentlemen, it's just about time for us to wrap up and conclude our show. So we'd like to uh, have you give us your final thoughts and your contact information. So, Drew, let's start with you. I'd close by saying I think there's been a lot of good done by vaccination programs, but I would encourage those of you who are listening, who are advising clients, and who are yourself thinking about uh, adding in a, a mandatory flu policy uh, that you may ought to give some consideration um, as to the, the nature of your situation, whether that's going to be the most effective way for you to go. And I would really encourage you to, before doing that, to sit down, write up a policy um, that sort of explains the exemptions that you're willing to provide, explains why you're going to be implementing this practice, and then provides a procedure that folks who are um, maybe religiously opposed, medically opposed, philosophically opposed uh, can can follow in order to recognize that exemption in the workplace. And so I, I think that it can be good, can be helpful in uh, in your particular business, but should be exercised with some care because people have very strong feelings about these particular issues. And, um, and so you want to make sure that you've taken the legal precautions necessary uh, to protect you and your business and your clients. So uh, again, my name is Drew Trimball. You can get in touch with me at atrimball.com at nmlk.com or check out our uh, employment law blog www.mcbrayeremploymentlaw.com Great, thank you Drew and John, we'll hand the microphone over to you Well, I'll follow up on what Drew had to say in dealing with the influenza vaccination and that is when you're talking about the flu you're talking about uh, more or less a a non-deadly disease certainly one that that, uh, can affect those with decreased ability to fight infection, to fight disease, uh, more so than healthy Americans. But in my article that I wrote a couple of years ago for the Mass Bar Journal focused on mandatory uh, programs uh, for health care providers, which I opposed mandating that health care providers get the health vaccine for a number of reasons. I, I think it doesn't have tremendous efficacy. And the illness we're talking about certainly is not as serious as measles or even more serious diseases. And uh, voluntary programs uh, can be quite imaginative and they can be quite successful, more successful, in fact, I think, than mandatory programs. Uh, When it comes to other types of vaccination programs, certainly in the states that allow religious objections, I think those objecting need need to tread lightly and we'd be well off, I think, advising our clients uh, to think very carefully about the public policy behind mandatory vaccination laws um, and, and whether something is truly objectionable. Uh, even uh, my experience with my knowledge with Christian Science Church is that they do not, uh, although they oppose traditional medication, there is no, no policy or dictate that uh, Christian scientists do not vaccinate their children or become vaccinated themselves. So, you know, my, my advice is to, to tread lightly and think carefully. You know, vaccinations have done a, a world of good in this country, and, and uh, you look at countries where they don't have mandatory vaccination programs, and uh, they have just enormous health problems compared to the United States. I can be reached at uh, jtocci, T-O-C-C-I, 
at TachiLee.com. That's T-O-C-C-I-L-E-E.com. And our website is uh, TachiLee.com. And our firm is Tachi and Lee. Jeremy, let's turn the microphone over to you. I don't have a lot. Maybe mostly echoing the same advice as our other two guests uh, just stated. But um, as far as uh, in a more general policy matter, with the you know the, the anti-vaccination movement is not really getting, it's not really losing steam at this point, and so there's going to be more uh, like outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases, like we saw in California uh, last year, and. Um, I think that this issue is going to become more and more uh, prevalent and there's probably going to be more, um, definitely be more laws and state level about uh, even tightening down some of these, these exemptions that, that have been availed by the anti-vax movement uh, largely. And so it'll be an issue of that will be in legal flux for a long time. It's really hard to say where this, the direction that the laws are heading here. Uh, and like California is, is considering a bill to eliminate the philosophical exemption to, to vac- mandatory vaccination. So we'll uh, see if that actually is, is successfully passed and if other states decide to follow suit. But my uh, my contact information, I can be reached uh, by email at jeremy, J-E-R-E-M-Y, dot bylin, B as in boy, Y-E-L-L-I-N, at bylinlaw.com. And if you want to read any uh, other uh, blogs I've written, not for the Legal Solutions uh, blog, it's the, the website is blog.legalsolutions.thompsonreuters.com. Great, Jeremy. Thank you very much. And gentlemen, thank you very much for being on the show. We very much appreciate your participation and your insights. That brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.